We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrician and I'm here with Natalie Smattis. Hey! In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Rohatan Martin. Dr. Rohatan Martin is an assistant professor in the Department of Human Services and Early Learning at McEwen University. Her research interests include experiences of students in inclusive schools, professional development of elementary and secondary teachers, particularly in deaf education, the impact of cognitive, social, emotional, and physical fatigue on varying students' populations, and the importance of student perception of inclusion. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. I'm very excited to talk about your research today. Um, I think we're just going to get started with, if you can just explain a bit about your research interests. Sure. Yeah. Uh, So there's two big research projects that I'm working on. So one surrounds fatigue. So fatigue of students, fatigue of students with uh, varying needs, disabilities. Um, And then we're working together. I have um, some co-investigators from the University of Alberta. Um, We're working together to create this measure of fatigue called the uh, Fatigue in Educational Context Survey. Uh, And it's really to help uh, parents, teachers, students, themselves um, think about what it is in their environment, in their life that is causing fatigue for them, um, and then helping them to be able to measure how fatigued they actually are and then look for resources to support them. And then I'm also working on uh, this book that we were given a grant from the library here at McEwen uh, to be able to create this open resource, and it's for educational assistants and helping them with specific case studies to be able to actually relate back to their daily work, to their uh, life, and be able to support students in that way. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm just I'm curious, what, what was the motivation behind your research? So I... I have an older brother who's deaf, and so I've always kind of been in the disability world, um, being an advocate, being someone there who supported him when he needed supporting, being there um, to champion him when he was um, thriving in the settings that he found super beneficial for him. So um, I think just always being in that mindset and being an ally in that way, I think, um, just prompted me to to stick within this field. And um, the more that you work together with individuals and they can tell you their stories, the more you really understand where they need somebody else to support them in this. And because I have this platform, I'm able to do that. So that's awesome. Cool. Um, you mentioned the fat- fatigue and educational contact survey. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about developing the survey? Yeah. So we were lucky to get um, SHRC funding, so federal funding for this. So we've had, like I said, co-investigators from the University of Alberta. We've had um, collaborators from the community as well, uh, Linda Cundy, and uh, actually my brother is involved, uh, Stefan Rohatton. Uh, He's at uh, Ball State University. And um, then a a varying amount of students from both McEwen and University of Alberta. Uh, And we went to the community itself and we talked to students who are deaf. We talked to adults who are deaf. We talked to um, parents, 
um, professionals and uh, the teaching teams within schools, and we asked them what they're noticing. We um, we got a lot of feedback from those who are deaf themselves about the high levels of fatigue that they experience. And it was just easy from then when they told us their experiences to be able to just think about the types of questions that we need to ask and what teachers and parents really need to know about um, these children or these students to be able to support them and, and truly understand what fatigue is. So we were lucky enough to get that funding um, to be able to sit down, do this research, and uh, we've created right now the survey is for post-secondary students. That one is completed. And we're working to modify now for K-12 students. Oh, great. Yeah. I, I think it's really important to um, get multiple views of of this sort of topic and um, through all sorts of workplaces and to really gather that information to know what is best. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting here as an able-bodied person, right? I'm not deaf myself. I, I've been in the deaf community lots. Um, so I can say that I'm, you know, an ally. I support them, but I'm. I don't have that experience. Exactly. Right? I. I don't know what it feels like for for a deaf person to experience those high levels of fatigue. And so I think it's really important that we get the voices of the people who are actually experiencing exactly, this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, that's yeah. awesome. We have, our mantra and our team, our research team is, you don't do deaf research without deaf people involved, right? So. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes perfect sense, yeah. And I could imagine, too, um, from a student who is in middle school to high school to university, their experiences are much different than each other's. Um, what are some of the differences you see in fatigue from those different ages? Absolutely. So um, it's really interesting because those who are in post-secondary settings, they typically understand really more, more what fatigue is. They have the language behind it to say, I'm exhausted. I can't do this. I need a break. Right. right? And they're not as afraid typically to go to their instructor and say, look, I need a break. I need something to change. I need something from you to be able to support me. Um, whereas we're finding in especially junior high and a little bit more in high school, um, that the students sometimes are afraid to to ask for those supports. They don't want to be seen as different in their classes or by their peers. Um, and sometimes they don't actually have the language to understand, oh gosh, I'm like I'm actually fatigued. They put it on themselves um, and they think it's more of them, I stayed up too late or mm-hmm. I did something mm-hmm. and this is my fault. Whereas really there's things in the environment that can be fatiguing them. There are just... Uh, the people that they're around who aren't giving them the support that they actually need because they might not know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all things that can contribute to it. But at that younger age, they're seeing it as it's their fault. It's not something they can control. So they just try to persevere through. So I think that's the big difference that we're really seeing. Right. And then in you know K to three, there's really not that understanding, right? It's People are just seeing it, oh, it's developmental. They're trying to get through it. But no, they're actually working really, really hard to, to try to do what they're being asked mm-hmm. to do. So mm-hmm. yeah. My sister isn't deaf, but she is dyslexic and, mm-hmm. um, you know, those kind of accommodations that she needed, you know, in high school or middle school, whatever, she didn't get to university because, you know, she didn't have that sort of language to communicate to others that she needed this help. And, yeah, that's really important to to be aware of that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, like, we're starting our research with uh, those who are deaf just because that's kind of where my research lands right now. But the goal is to expand this survey so that everyone – Uh, all teachers, all students, all parents can be able to have access to the survey 
because we all experience fatigue, right? right? Yeah. With different levels. And we all have different challenges, different needs, different successes. And we need to understand for ourselves what environments are going to make us all fatigued and what it is that we can do to help control some of that for ourselves too, right? So if you're if you're sitting in class and you realize, you know, when this teacher is showing visuals of things or is showing, you know, writing things on the board, plus then we're able to work with it with our hands, they need to figure out what works best for them, right? And sometimes it's a combination of all different things. And some days are going to be completely different than others, right? Where maybe you're you're typically someone who loves to use visuals, but some days you have a, a headache and staring at visuals like that isn't going to support you. So understanding what typically works best for you, but then understanding that there could be variants, right? right. And then being comfortable enough to speak up for yourself, right? Be able to talk to teachers about what works for you. Talk about it with your peers too. Like, I'm sorry, I'm really trying to focus and you're really loud and I, I'm, it's, you know, it's giving me a headache or I can't focus through the noise and just understanding what works. And then if you're able to communicate about that, then you will be able to get the supports you need. Right. But at the same time, it's not just putting it on the students, right? The adults in the room need to really understand what the concept is, first of all, of fatigue and even just where people benefit and and struggle through things. Um, and then being able to try to mitigate as much as possible before students even enter the classroom. So all of that is kind of pushed by the wayside. And then hopefully those barriers are gone. Everybody can come in and just focus. And then if there's little individual things that students need, those are much easier to tackle than these big things like acoustics in the room or things mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, But I think specifically working with uh, educational assistants, the context is changing a little bit. So we used to always think about educational assistants as working one-on-one -on -one with students. And really, especially in Alberta, it's shifted now that there's EAs supporting classrooms themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of work for one person, but at the same time, really focusing on getting students involved in small group work and then larger classwork and maybe one-on-one -on -one with their peers rather than an EA, that's really more of where we're moving to. And so for educational assistance, it's about supporting the students to understand what is working for them and helping them to be able to generalize it to different classes or different uh, topics or areas that they're working on um, to give them the support that they feel they need and then to step back so the students can do it themselves or with their peers. And basically the EAs are working themselves out of a job. That's kind of the goal of education. So I just want to go back to um, one of your research papers, the challenge of fatigue for students who are deaf or hard of hearing in inclusive classrooms. Can you just give us a brief rundown on this paper? Sure. Yeah. So when we did this research, uh, Dr. Hayward and I, we were interviewing students uh, who are deaf or hard of hearing just about their experiences within mainstream classrooms in general. Um, and then a big topic that came up was this idea of fatigue. And so when we delved deeper into this, they really talked about five different themes. They talked about their listening effort. So how much they actually, how much effort they actually had to put forward in these environments to focus and listen to what was coming at them. Um, the conditions then, the environments of where they were actually listening, how they worked through having to um, listen through this challenging environment. And then how some of them just gave up in the end, right? They just said it wasn't worth the effort. So, um, and then, of course, the amount of effort that they were actually putting in. Interesting. Yeah. So, w especially with the students, like when we talk about the 
the listening conditions or the environments that they're actually in. You know, with some deaf students, they have cochlear implants or hearing aids. So they're mm-hmm. actually trying to mm-hmm. listen, right, through um, their their amplification devices. And then others are attending through sign language interpreters, right? And so uh, that type of listening or attending to is also fatiguing for them as well, depending on the conditions. So there could be noise and background noise in the room that's really affecting students, but there could also be things like lighting that's really affecting them or not having closed captions on videos. Mm -hmm. And all of this really contributes to the fatigue for deaf students in the classroom. Yeah, I was I was wondering like what is the best way to communicate to deaf people? Like I I haven't I've never really been around deaf people. So yeah, I guess sign language and hearing devices, I didn't really think about that. So yeah. yeah. There's I, I mean, when you've met one deaf person, you've only met one deaf person, right. right? And it's the same, I guess, with any type of um difference or need. Um, but really it it depends on that individual. Mm. There's a lot of people who use spoken language and um that's how they communicate. There are some who use different sign languages. Mm. Um, and then there are some who use a combination of both and um, to support their um, sometimes to support if they're trying to listen, um, then they use the sign language to support them in that way or vice versa. Right. right. Um, so, it, yeah, it really does depend on, on the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Do you think that like with technology and people understanding a little bit more the psychology behind teaching in classrooms, um, especially with deaf individuals, the the way they teach now has changed and the way they support these students has changed? I think for a lot of teachers, they're really starting to understand things like universal design for learning, which means that you're thinking about barriers that can happen in the classroom before, trying to eradicate them, and then again, working to focus on individual needs then in the classroom. I think I mean, that's being taught, right, for, for pre-service teachers and so people coming into the field. And I think those teachers who are doing research and really staying up um, with supported um, work that they should be doing in the classroom, then, you know, yes, I think there there's a lot more support, a lot more understanding of how to support students. Um, but when you look at when we interviewed those students and we asked them about their experiences in mainstream mm. classrooms, a lot of the same issues were still coming up. Mm. So I think it it really depends on the schools, the school boards, what their policies are. Um, everybody talks about inclusion and, you know, making sure that everyone's there and together and everyone's learning with their peers, which is so important. But that support needs to be there, right? Right. And a lot of that support comes from funding. And Mm. when there's times that funding and education gets cut, then it's harder to support students who have additional needs or who just need modifications in the classroom. Because when we have class sizes of 30 plus students Mm -hmm. in a K to 12 setting, it's really hard for one teacher to be able to support the needs of all the students. Because, yeah, I mean, if we look at the three of us around this table, there's we would all have different learning needs, right? Mm-hmm. Different learning styles. And yeah. And so thinking about to, how to support three people in, in a room would be a lot easier than 30 people. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And like, yeah, especially when, when they are a little bit younger and a little more rowdy, you know, Absolutely. it can definitely be hard with just one Absolutely. teacher. My mom is a teacher as well. And she sometimes, you know, brings back stories from her grade five class being like, oh, these kids, <laughs> like, yeah. but, you know, she, she definitely needs help with that too. So Absolutely. Yeah. I started off in, uh, in a Div 1 setting where I was teaching anywhere from kindergarten to grade three. And yeah, it's challenging. And that 
the fact that I was having trouble supporting students uh, in the classroom, even with a special education background, um, it made me want to go back to school and do my mm. master's and do my PhD to really be able to show that support for educators and teaching uh teaching staff, the support staff, so educational assistants and interpreters, um, everyone like that who's who's really supporting within yeah. the schools. So that's, that's really important, um, I think, too, because um, like going back to, you know, the students knowing what they need, um, you know, not all, it doesn't happen always right away. It takes time sometimes for those students to realize what they need and sometimes they need external help. So educating, you know, EAs or, you know, teachers like that is really important for that, I think. Absolutely. Especially in those first years, the students are just getting used to being at school. Like, mm-hmm. what is this? How do grades differ? You know, by the time you hit junior high, you kind of have that sense of, okay, this is what's going to happen. Right. And then when you hit high school, you're like, okay, I've got this, yeah. right? Like, you feel like you have more of a control over what's going on. But yeah, I when you think back, I, I have two children right now. One's in grade one and just experiencing again through him the joys of learning about what's coming mm-hmm. in school and all of that you you tend to forget as an mm-hmm. adult. So sometimes I think we're expecting a lot more of the students to be able to advocate mm-hmm. for themselves when they don't even know what they could be right. advocating for. Yeah. Makes and I sense. think too, like I was very fortunate to have very, very good parents, but for some students that their parents may like overlook certain things they they don't know how to say that I think I have a problem like I don't think I'm learning to the best of my ability so how do you think because I'm sure sometimes it can be kind of a a little bit of a fight with parents from teachers and EAs how do you how do you build that relationship between a parent and a EA or a teacher yeah it's it's it can be difficult but at times if if you're there telling the parents, I'm here to support your child, right? Regardless of what it is, that's that's our job, right? We're here in, in the school to do that. I think when it comes from that place of compassion and caring and really showing them that you are focused on that child, then that makes a world of a difference, right? Mm-hmm. If you come at them and you say, look, your child has been misbehaving in the classroom and I think there's a problem with them. I mean, I would get my back mm-hmm. up, right? If right. someone said that about yeah. my child. So um, yeah, I, I think it's it's how you approach it, right? right? And really building those relationships is really important. So I teach in the educational assistant certificate here at McEwen, mm-hmm. and there's a whole course on just collaboration and communication and how you need to build these relationships, not just with the parents, but with the teachers and every other professional in the school. Um, But parents are a big one because you really want to make sure that the messages that are coming across at school are what's coming home as well. Mm -hmm. And if the children do need additional supports, then we need everybody on board to be able to support the child, right? So they need to be, if we're trying to keep things consistent at school, we would need that consistency at home as well, mm-hmm. right? So it's building that relationship and, and trying to make sure that everyone can be on board. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, I also, from another student perspective, I, I, feel, I feel sometimes being in school, sometimes that I'm not helping my peers who may be struggling, especially with deaf and hard of hearing students because not until I moved to Edmonton from my small city did I realize that, oh, I should probably know how to sign, especially working customer service. Um, What can we do as students to help our peers with disabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Within 
classrooms themselves, I mean, being there to support one another is just a big, uh, a good start. Mm -hmm. So I think if you are offering to share your notes, right? Um, that's a really nice place to start because then we know that, especially those who are deaf or hard of hearing, if they're in the classroom, they're trying really hard to focus on what's mm -hmm. happening. And looking at someone trying to either read their lips or speech read um, or watch an interpreter or watch captioning, you're so focused on that. Writing notes is something completely different, right? And trying to multitask like that can be really hard. Mm -hmm. So saying just to your peer, Look, I, I'm writing these notes down. I'm fine. I'm like, I'm more than happy to share them with you. That's a really good place to start because then they know they can just try to take in right. the information rather than trying to multitask. Um, I think, you know, just being being an advocate, being, you know, supporting them, getting together if you – not everybody needs to be friends, but I mean, if you – find a common thread with yourself and them, you know, talking about that with them and having somebody in the class that they know will be a happy face that they can come to and ask questions to if they've missed something. Um, when we were talking with those high school students, some of them said, you know, I find it really hard to stop the teacher or the instructor and say, you know, I think I missed that. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't, they want to just kind of let the mm -hmm. class keep going organically because nobody else is stopping mm -hmm. to ask mm -hmm. questions. And so I think if, if you have developed that relationship with them where they would feel okay to just say, I totally missed that. Can you fill me in after class or or write a little oh, note yeah. and, you know, star it on your notes so I can look over and that yeah. something like that just helps too, right? Knowing that they don't have to feel embarrassed that they've missed that. So I think those are two good places to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very good. I've never really thought of that before. Um, and that must contribute to fatigue in deaf and hard of hearing students, kind of the lack of being able to well is there even a lack of being able to communicate with the peers and kind of is there a sense of like being lonely when they can't really relate to the others around them absolutely so I mean when you think about those who use uh let's say, for example, American Sign Language, right, ASL, um, that's a completely different language, right? So it's it's no different than you having French as your first language or Spanish or anything like that. Um, so a lot of the struggles that we see those who are deaf or hard of hearing um, show in the classroom are very similar to English language learners. So um, if there is that communication barrier, if someone does uh, solely communicate in uh, let's say, for example, American Sign Language, and then their hearing peer solely communicates in spoken English, there might be a barrier. Um, it might result in someone having to write things down mm -hmm. um, in order to communicate, or maybe there is talk through an interpreter, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that makes it a little hard to um, really create those solid friendships, I would right. say, if there's a third party mm -hmm. involved. Um, so I think kind of what you pointed to earlier, if you do have the opportunity to learn sign language, I don't think that's a bad place to start just in, in life in general, right? You can communicate with not just people who are deaf or hard of hearing, but anyone who might use sign language to support their, right. um, their language. Um, but I think too, there are lots of individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing who do use spoken language, mm -hmm. right? And Maybe sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to understand, so you can ask them to repeat themselves. I know for my brother, he communicates in both uh, spoken language and sign language, and he doesn't get offended when someone says, sorry, I missed that, right? Because if you think of somebody who has a really strong accent, you'd probably ask them to repeat it again right. too, right? Yeah. So why not ask again? So don't feel bad um, doing that. But um, 
yeah, there that language barrier sometimes can be a contributing factor to fatigue for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually three different kinds of fatigue that um, we've seen in research. There's cognitive fatigue, which is that uh, kind of that mental when you're focusing a lot on what the information that's coming in. There's physical fatigue, so how your body is actually reacting, your muscles and cramps and things like that. And then there's this new concept um, thought of as social emotional fatigue. Mm-hmm. And so this is when you're interacting with your peers and after a while you're just so spent that you don't want to interact with people anymore. And so there's actually an overlap of all three together. We've pieced it out so people have an understanding of where this fatigue can come from, but really they all impact one another. So if a student is sitting in a classroom and they're using all this cognitive energy to focus and just attend to what's happening, and then their peers are wanting to talk to them after, they might just be so done that they just, they don't have that energy. And so that can affect their relationships too, right? Because then you don't want to be around people. You just need a break. You just want five minutes to yourself. But now your peers are chatting, oh, let's go for coffee. Let's go do this. And you're like, I just need, I just need five minutes of complete silence or whatever it is that that individual needs. And I feel like we all need that mm-hmm. at some point, right? To just disengage. Um, and But sometimes it's not seen and it's not understood because they've been sitting in a class, right? right. For some of us, we might be sitting in a class maybe bored or maybe just uh, disengaged. And then you want to go engage with people because right. that was so draining in a different way. So it, it, yeah, it really depends on the person, but it definitely can be a factor. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to to like an outside person, like a student sitting in a classroom, you wouldn't think there's so much like fatigue going on, um, you know, in their mind or you know through those different fatigue levels. But there is this is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why it's important that we developed this survey because this way students can actually get the point across as to what they are individually feeling, Mm -hmm. right? In my dissertation research, uh, way back in uh, 2017, I found that a lot of of people don't typically go to the students themselves to ask them how they're feeling or Mm. what's going on for them, especially students with disabilities. People tend to go to the teachers, people tend to go to the parents, and like people who are talking for the students. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. So that's why I set out to actually go to the students themselves. And I was like, I'm asking you. And I feel like that came a little bit from my background of seeing people overlook my brother too. And my Mm -hmm. parents were always talking. And to be honest, I was talking for him as well. And I've learned a lot more through my own research that we need to let people speak for themselves and share their experiences. And so this survey does that, right? So the teachers get to have their own survey that they fill out about the student. The parents get to do it about their child. And then the child or the student themselves gets to fill it out. And then the goal is that the three parties come together and they actually look at everyone's responses. And, you know, it's not to call anyone out saying like, oh, you don't understand what's going on with this child or student, but now you have a better understanding. And maybe many of these answers match up together and maybe they don't. And it's really important to see that and Mm -hmm. see where that disparity would be. Exactly. Yeah. Because they're all supporting this person, Mm -hmm. right? Including themselves. And I think too, when they can see on a piece of paper or digitally, whichever version they choose, that like, oh, these things create fatigue. This is what's, you know, making me feel this way. Oh, none of this has anything to do with what I'm doing. Then I think that can actually help that individual too. It probably is very enlightening for all parties. I hope so. Mm. 
And then once the survey is completed and they all match up all their surveys, um, with that information, what would be the next step after those surveys? Yeah. So it's it's seeing where they're at in terms of levels of fatigue, right? And it's seeing which avenues, even though I said they all overlap, but maybe there's more physical fatigue happening or maybe more cognitive fatigue. So it's really good to see where that is and then to start analyzing what's what's creating that, right? right? Is it the environment? Is it the setting? Are the teachers continuously putting them together, working with peers who don't understand that, you know, when when you're talking to me, you need to be facing me so I can help to mm-hmm. read your lips or mm-hmm. something. Um, it's it's understanding those little things so that you can start to mitigate that fatigue, right? right? And once you start to figure out where specifically the student is struggling, then you can have things that are coming into place, right? So, But the biggest place to start is giving breaks. We all need breaks in class, outside of class. Um, so that's the first place that all teachers and parents can do to really support anyone who, who is feeling high levels of fatigue. Um, and just to be able to say, look, we're, we're going to take a five-minute break. Everyone gets this break so that there's no information being lost. Um, and then we can move on. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Um, You mentioned in one of your papers that I had read the difference between fatigue and being tired. Mm -hmm. Could you just explain a little bit of that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think with the pandemic, we all understand now what fatigue is, right? (laughs) Like this feeling of overwhelming exhaustion. Um, And we all felt it in different ways, you know, some of not being near people, some being on these tiny little boxes for a year. And but um, a lot of people start to think of fatigue as synonymous with tired. Mm. And tired, when you're tired, which we, we all feel tired, I mean, some of us might be tired right now, <laughs> if, you, if you have a nap or you have a rest of some sort, even that five-minute break, that's going to help alleviate those feelings of mm. being tired, right? And sometimes it might take a longer nap and sometimes it might take two naps, but eventually those symptoms are resolved. Right. Fatigue is compounded where it's something that's happening day in and day out and it's constantly affecting someone. And so having a nap isn't going to help. And in fact, people who have really high levels of fatigue, a lot of them are having trouble sleeping in general. Mm -hmm. So um, while sleep would be beneficial for them, it's not going to absolve what they're feeling, right? right? You need to find out where that fatigue is actually coming from to be able to stop it. Typically, when you're tired, you can figure out right away where the, where that tiredness is coming from. You've stayed up too late or you've had too much caffeine or you've worked yourself really hard that day. Um, but it's not that compounding layer of over and over and over. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think of a spectrum, there's tired at, you know, the one end. There's burnout at the complete other end. Mm-hmm. And then fatigue is in the middle, mm-hmm. right? And so the more and more you're piling on what's happening to make you fatigued, the more you're going to be pushing yourself towards that burnout. So we want to start with, well, I mean, you can start with what tires you, but really start to figure out what's doing that fatiguing of your body, right, to that extent before it gets you or leads you to that burnout. Hmm. Yeah. And it could also just be like, um, like it doesn't even have to be like physical, like something the physical that you're doing, also like mentally Absolutely. something that you're doing that is tiring too, or fatiguing as well. So. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. See, we all do yeah. it. We all we all say <laughs> tiring, and even it's funny because so I am fluent in sign language, yeah. and the sign right now that people use for fatigue is tired. Mm. So it's the same, and so we're trying to to move away from that. So right now we just fingerspell fatigue. Mm. And people ask us that all the time. They're like, why is why are you just fingerspelling it? It's because we haven't found a sign yet that we 
that we think would really be representative of that. So right. um, we're working with the deaf community right now to to really think, the Edmonton deaf community, um, to think about what that sign could be. So that's another kind of little side cool. project that we're working on. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you work with the community quite often? I try to. I mean, it's really hard to do research about deaf individuals without them mm-hmm. present, right? So, um, yeah, like I said, I was a teacher before um, becoming a professor. And so I try to work with the School for the Deaf that's in Edmonton. And I try to um, go to the events with the Connect Society, which is a preschool that they have, um, and really try to stay engaged as much as I can. That's awesome. Yeah. And I guess, too, as students and people of the community, that's a way we can learn as well, mm-hmm. is reaching out to them. Absolutely. They have sign language classes all the time. They have deaf culture classes that you can learn about what deaf culture is about. And, mm. yeah, there's always opportunities to volunteer and support. Huh. Cool. Where, where, like, is a specific, like, location that you go or online or? There's the Alberta Cultural Society for the Deaf. Okay. And they do um, some classes online. They do some in person. Um, the University of Alberta has uh, classes if you want to take them for credit. Um, so, yeah, if you just give it a quick Google, there's lots of nice. opportunity. Does yeah. McEwen offer a class? They used to. They but used to. as far as I know, not anymore. Mm. But it's something that I think we'll we could. For it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we could. I would have some great resources yeah. to be able to bring in. Cool. Yeah. And I wonder, too, why... It's not taught in high school or middle school. Do you have any ideas? So it, it in some in some. Uh, in some school districts, it is considered one of the additional languages. Mm-hmm. So you can take it in uh, high school as a language, which is really neat. Uh, but not all of them. Yeah. Not all the school districts. So um, if you do have the opportunity, it's it's a great place to learn. Um, but I do know that, like my son, for example, he's in grade one. Like I had said, he it's incorporated into his music class. Oh, nice. So yeah. with some of the songs that they're learning, there's some signs that are attached to it. And so he comes home and he's like, "Mom, I already knew this." one because (laughs) we do a little bit of signing at home but and then he gets to show off and help Mm -hmm. support other students too so um yeah but I think the more we expose one another to all different types of languages and cultures the more better off we'll all be Mm -hmm. especially too with inclusion I find sometimes certain people can get can slip through the cracks and it's really individuals who want to make sure that everyone's inclusive um so even through organizations and school boards um as young people too if we're have a voice and kind of push for that we can open up these classes and make it more inclusive yeah absolutely and I mean the thing is if people are falling through the cracks then it's not inclusion yeah (laughs) right and I think that's what people don't seem to understand it's not just about getting everybody together in the class right so what I've learned through my research and my education really is that inclusion is a philosophy right you have to be you have to believe that everybody um, gets what they need what they deserve in order to be able to live and and be seen as kind of equals people say that you know the goal is equality but the goal is ac- actually equity so mm-hmm. everybody gets the supports that they need um, and if that's not happening then there's no inclusion mm-hmm. right so the action is really working towards equity but inclusion is more of that mindset and that philosophy that we should all be embracing right I had a question about resources. Like, do you think there's a lack of resources for students with disabilities? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of a loaded question, but uh, I think in general, yes. Yeah. Um, or 
or there's some great resources out there, but they don't know how to access mm-hmm. them, right? And and some of the adults don't know how to access mm-hmm. them. Um, but I do think that in general, in K to 12 and post secondary, I think that the people who are there supporting or having these supports for um, the students, they're overwhelmed as well. Mm-hmm. There's right. a lot going on. And like I said, there's underfunding, there's not enough people to be able to support and they're doing their best to support, but it there's a lot. There's a lot. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the more resources that can be allocated there, the better off all students will be. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you know, each, each student is different, like you said. So, you know, when you have a class of 30 students or 30, 30 kids, then um, and each one needs to learn differently. You know, that's that's very hard for one teacher or two teachers to get to all of those um the students' needs exactly. individually. So, exactly. Yeah. And actually in our, our book that we're working on for EAs with the case studies, one thing we do talk about is really being able to benefit from peer-to-peer support. Mm. So if you can get students together working in the classroom, and, and I'm not just saying like those who are really advanced working with those who maybe aren't, uh, even just those who are on the same level working together and supporting one another, that makes a huge difference, right? Sure. Because if one student has a question, if they feel comfortable enough to go to their friend and say, I don't understand this and the teacher's busy right now, but you seem to understand it. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And then they can figure out and sometimes in a, a better way than we as adults can support them on how to how to help one another. And that doesn't mean that teachers are redundant or EAs are redundant at that point because they'll still come to you when they don't understand more things mm-hmm. or or their peer has explained something and they're like, oh, I get that, but I don't understand this. And, and they're like, oh, I don't know how to explain that better to you. Then they come to the adults, mm-hmm. right? And ask exactly. the question. So, but yeah, using the peers in the classroom is is a really good support as well interesting yeah yeah cool I never really thought about that way yeah yeah sometimes we just think oh more group work we really have to work together and and sometimes that group work is just for you know for fun putting them together but other times there's a there's a real um opportunity there for Mm -hmm. for you to support Mm -hmm. uh someone else in that group too I never thought of it from the perspective that you are helping each other each other Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, you're, you're really having that opportunity to grow and flourish together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. I don't think I have any more questions. Did you have anything else, else to that say? you yeah. to add? I don't think so. Just thank you for the opportunity to come on and chat with you both today. I've had a great time. Awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. me too. Oh, that was awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast. Brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smattis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smattis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.